to our assembly this morning. Uh, before we uh, get into the message this morning, uh, as we've already announced, the Heistons uh, are back safe and sound uh, during that long ordeal of about 51 hours or so of traveling from Japan to, uh, to South Texas. And we're really thankful for their presence with us over the next uh, couple of months and over the several weeks as, as they re-enter life in the United States. But this summer is going to be a very, very busy summer for missions here at MacArthur Park. Uh, in July, we're going to have uh, uh, some more of our folk that are going to go to Taiwan to, uh, to spend some time sharing the gospel there and using some LST-type materials. So we want to be pray- prayerful about that. Uh, our missionaries in uh, Santiago, Chile, Manuel and Melissa Soto, are going to be coming back to the States for a short furlough in July and spending some time with us before heading back to Santiago. And then also this next Wednesday, Wednesday of this week, uh, there are going to be 14 from our group, plus three from another church, making 17 altogether, that are go- going to be heading down to Honduras, to the Don Lee area, to do some work down there with the churches and the missionaries that we support there. And uh, there are 14 of our own church family members here that are going to be a part of that trip. And uh, I'd like for all of those that are going to be going to Honduras for Mac to stand right now. And Everett Heist and one of our shepherds is going to lead us in a prayer for that trip. And we want you to know that, uh, that we will be mindful of you and prayerful of all the things that you're going to be doing for the kingdom of God while down there in Honduras. We'd like for you to stand right now and be recognized. Will you lead us in prayer? Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we are reminded that you told us through your Son and through his apostles to go into all the world and make disciples. Father, it is our privilege to be about the business of doing all that we can to evangelize this world. We're grateful for the 17 that are leaving this Wednesday, going to Honduras for the work of ministry, for the work of missions in that area of the world. Father, we pray that as Gilbert and uh, Daniel and Chachi lead this team, we pray that uh, you'll be with not only those who lead, but those who follow. We recognize that every member of this team, in and of themselves, will be, will be a leader. That those in Honduras will be watching them and following them and grateful for the work of missions that they'll be performing. And Father, we're grateful that you have blessed this congregation to be able to send a team of 14 in the Donnelly area to do all that they can to represent you and to perform your will in this area of the world. We learn in reading your word in Hebrews, the first chapter, verse 14, that angels are but ministering spirits sent by you to minister to those you love. And Father, we pray that as these 14, these 17 go out, as ministering spirits, that you will station your angels around them, provide them safety of travel, 
and return them to us, rejoicing in what they've seen and done, bringing honor and glory to your name. And once again, we are grateful that we as a congregation can in a small way participate in their mission efforts. Thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name that we offer this prayer. Amen. Amen. Thank you. As you know, uh, since January, we've been in a series where we're looking at all of the books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and we've had a couple of weeks off, a couple of Sundays off because of Mother's Day and um, uh, our anniversary or celebration uh, Sunday after 60 years of being a church in San Antonio. And we're going to jump back into that study this morning. We're going to, we're, even though we're in the Old Testament, we're going to, to start in the New Testament. Uh, you'll remember that for a lot of Je- Jesus' ministry, he's in confrontation with the religious leaders, primarily the, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law, over things that he would teach and things that he would do. In John chapter 5, there's, there's no different. In John chapter 5, you have Jesus in confrontation with these uh, religious leaders over a healing on the Sabbath and the fact that he referred to God as, as his Father. And in response to to these accusations, Jesus says in John chapter 5 that there are five that give testimony or witness to the truth of every claim that Jesus made about himself. And in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 39, he says this about Scripture. He says, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that, say it together, testify about me. Jesus is saying that the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures that the Pharisees and every other uh, uh, member of the the, the nation of Israel and growing up had memorized the, the Torah and the wisdom literature and the prophets, all of those Scriptures that they knew by heart pointed to Him and testified to Him and witnessed to Him. That's one of the reasons why we make this statement at the beginning of these sermons about the Bible. And that statement is... The Bible is not a collection of random stories, but the Bible is, it's one story. It's about God, it's about man, it's about what went wrong and what God is doing to put it back together again. Now, as a quick recap, over uh, the last time we were in this series, we were looking at the exile of those ten northern tribes. The last time we, we got together, we saw how Solomon has died, Rehoboam, his son, has become king, he goes up to, to Shechem for kind of a convocation that's going to unite all of, the, all of the tribes together under him as a king. As we saw in that sermon, there was some, some fragmentation of the tribes under Solomon. And even going back to the time of Joshua and the judges, there had been some fragmentation of those, of those tribes. And now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, is king. Second Chronicles chapter 10, he goes to Shechem. He's trying to get everybody to be in accord with his, with his anointing as king. And out of the blue, here's this fellow by the name of Jeroboam who is fresh from exile in Egypt because of some problems with Solomon who comes and he challenges Rehoboam by saying, you know, your father did a lot of construction and he he enforced slavery, forced labor on the people. He taxed them heavily in order to build this great nation. Now, here's our recommendation to you. If you will allow the people rest from their work and from taxation, they will follow you wherever you go. You will rally the nation to you. And Rehoboam says, well, you know what? That sounds pretty good. Give me a couple of days to think about it. I want to get some advice. And that's what he does. And so he goes to the older men, his older advisors, and they say, you know what? Jeroboam has a point. 
Your father forced a heavy burden on the people's finances and on the people's bodies in terms of all of the building and the masonry work that had to be done throughout this entire nation as it's expanded and gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. You know what? We agree with Jeroboam. If you give the people rest, they will rally to you. And Rehoboam goes, you know, well, that's, that sounds right. I want to ask some more advisors. And so he goes to the young guys. And as we've talked about this before, what is it about young guys that want to be tough guys? That the young guys say, what are you talking about? You're the king. You've got to show yourself as a man of strength. You've got to bring the anvil. You've got to drop the hammer on these people. You've got to show yourself as somebody that needs to be reckoned with. And they say, you have got to be tougher than your father Solomon. And Rehoboam goes, you know what? That sounds exactly like what I wanted to hear. And so he goes back to Jeroboam and he goes back to all of the people. And he says, you know, my pinky was thicker than my father's waist, which is quite an insult to Solomon. And he says, where my, my father scourged you with whips, I'm going to scourge you with scorpions. And Jeroboam goes, hey, that's all we needed to hear. To your tents, Israel, house of David, Judah, look after yourself. And so those ten tribes follow Jeroboam and they separate from the two tribes in the south. And Jeroboam is a great strategic thinker. He's an intelligent guy. And he realizes that after a while, those ten tribes in the north, if they go back to Jerusalem and they go back to Solomon's temple and they see the beauty and, and they participate in the great festivals of, of Jewish religion, of Judaism, those three times during the year, there's a danger. They'll get homesick and nostalgic and they'll want to reunite. And so he sets up these two false centers of worship in the north and begins to lead Israel into a, a, a state of apostasy. And the long line of kings that follow do the same thing. And that apostasy culminates with the Assyrians coming and destroying the capital in the north. And it's kind of a summary statement on that first sermon about that particular part of the history, those ten tribes in the north. It's up here on the screen. Write it down on your outline. Spiritual unfaithfulness and disdain of the prophetic warnings to repent led to the destruction and exile of the northern ten tribes, 722-721 B.C., by the army of Assyria. Those ten tribes were decimated. Samaria was demolished. The entire northern kingdom of ten tribes in that year were devastated, never to be heard from again. Now what about Judah and the two tribes in the south? That's what we want to look at this morning. The two remaining tribes and the remaining line of Davidic kings in 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles. And we'll do it through three different angles. The first is, what is the purpose of the king? Number two, the problem of the kings. And then number three, the coming of the perfect king. The purpose, the problem, and the coming of the perfect king. Now, here are the kings of Judah. Let's start with this. The purpose of the king. From the beginning of time, from the beginning of Israel as a nation, from the beginning of the time when people would call on God as God and as their Lord and as their Savior and as their Shepherd, they were always to refer to Him and to think of Him as their King. God Himself was always to be recognized as the true King of His people. One of the last things that Moses reminds the people as they've been wandering around the desert for 40 years, getting ready to go into that promised land, in those three sermons that make up the book of Deuteronomy, there at the very end, Deuteronomy chapter 33, he reminds them of that very fact. He says, He was, God, was king over Jeshurun, which is 
uh, in Hebrew means the upright one. It was kind of a nickname for, for Israel. He was king over Jeshurun when the leaders of the people assembled along with the tribes of Israel. God was always to be recognized as king by Israel. But one of the things about God is that God knows things before we even know them to be a, a hint in the back of our mind. And God knew that the day would come when the people would want an earthly king. And so God began to make provisions in order for that king to remain faithful to him and then be able to lead those people faithfully to him. And in one of the most comprehensive sections on what the king was supposed to do, in Deuteronomy chapter 33, we're not going to read it because it's so long, you find all of these detailed stipulations about the nature and the office and the rights and the responsibilities of the king. Number one, he could not be foreign. He had to be a Jewish. He was not to multiply horses. Now, why in the world would God say the king was not supposed to multiply horses? It's because he was not supposed to trust in his own military strength. Where was the true power of Israel? Was it in their chariots, their horses, their spears, their armor, their army? Where was it, church? It was in God. He was not to multiply wives. That is, create all of these foreign alliances to ensure the peace because God would be their peace. He was not to multiply silver and gold because God was going to be his resource. God was his treasure. God was his true riches. God was the precious thing to him. Not the gold and not the silver. And then Moses says when that king comes about, he's supposed to sit down with a blank pad of paper and he's to write for himself a copy of the law. Now you know as well as I do, when you were in school and you wrote things down, you remembered them a lot better than when you just read them or you just heard somebody talk about them. That's why we have you make notes during the sermon time, is to remember. You write it down, it's another way of remembering. He was to sit down and make for himself a copy of the Torah. That is to know it. To be invested in it. And not only was he to know it by writing himself a copy of it, but he was to read the law, all the Torah, all the days of his life in order to do what it says. The king was to be a man of faith. The king was to lead the people in faith to greater heights of faithfulness in God. But not only that, there are a couple of psalms, like Psalm 2. Psalm 132, that refer to the, uh, to the king being God's son. And so on top of all of these things that he was supposed to do as the recognized leader of God's people, God is saying in Psalm 2, Psalm 132, that he is my son. Now, with that scriptural background, there is an old German theologian by the name of Gerhard von Rad, who, who's written a very good uh, theology of the Old Testament. In fact, that's the name of the book. Who has written this summary statement that I find spot on that describes in a summary way the office of the king. Von Rad writes, The king is God's son per adoptionum, which is uh, by adoption, he is commissioned to rule by God Himself. He governs the people with justice and wisdom. He is the great benefactor and shepherd of His people which flourishes under His rule. Yes, even the natural fertility of man, beast, and field increases through the blissful effect of His rule. The King is fair and around Him is an atmosphere of joy abroad. He is the dread victor who triumphs over all His foes. When you look at the scope and the, the, the exhaustive span of Scripture and, and scan those verses on the king, that's about as good a summary statement as you find. Now, in summary, the king was God's son who was intended to rule the nation rightly in faithfulness to God. 
And believe it or not, after Deuteronomy chapter 3, and Joshua and Judges, the day does come. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people begin to clamor for an earthly king. And the prophet Samuel is displeased by that because he knows in the depths of his soul that God is to be the, the true king of Israel. And he warns the people to be careful what they wish for. Be careful what you pray for. Be careful what you ask God for. Because if you get a king, he will take your sons and make them to be his soldiers. He will take others of your sons to plow and to harvest his fields. He will take yet other sons and they will be the ones who make the weapons of war. He will take your daughters and they will be cooks and perfumers. He will take in taxation your, your fields and your vineyards and your orchards. He will take your livestock. He will take all of your bovines, all of your cows, and, and make them his and then the clincher, he will make you his slaves. And the people said, yeah, 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 but we want a king over us. We want a king over us, then we will be like all the, say it church, we will be like everybody else with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. And earthly kings they would have. Which leads us to the problem of the kings. First begins with Saul. Saul is anointed. He's the first king. Things start out sort of okay, but they do not end well at all. The next is David. Oh, David. Beautiful, beautiful David. The son of Jesse. Born in Bethlehem. A shepherd boy. The shepherd of God's people. The man after God's own heart. He's the one that's going to chase after God's own heart. First Samuel chapter 13. Uh, the, God says that I'm going to choose somebody after my own heart. Acts chapter 13, the same thing is said about David. He is the man after God's own heart. And God makes a covenant with David to build his house, to build this dynastic house. David wanted to build the temple. God says, no, but I'm going to build your house. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And David says, that's so wonderful. Thank you. And David lives his life and David dies and David's son Solomon becomes the great and wise king after David. And then we find ourselves again here in history. We're right back. Here's Rehoboam following in his, his father Solomon's footsteps as king. And Rehoboam missteps and the nation divides. And then not only missteps, but then misleads and Judah begins to drift spiritually. Now the spiritual history for Judah, those two tribes in the south, is, is better than the ten tribes to the north. But there is still a decline. Judah is up, and they have good kings and good kings, and then they go down because there's a bad king. And then they're up because there are good kings, and then they go down because there's a bad king. Judah is up, and then Judah is down. But eventually, Judah is going to drift like Israel into exile and devastation as well. Well, after Rehoboam, there's Asa who follows his father. He starts off well. He cuts, off, cuts down the Asherah poles that his grandmother Ma'akah had erected. He stems for a time the spiritual drift of Judah. But you know what? He doesn't get rid of all of the high places, those pagan places of worship. Toward the end of his life, he becomes prideful and he dies of a terrible, terrible disease in his feet, which might be a wishful euphemism for a, a worse place to get a disease. And then there's Jehoshaphat, who is a godly man. But he has a penchant for compromising himself with ungodly people. And after him, Jehoram, who marries Athaliah. And do you know who Athaliah is? Athaliah is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. 
He marries their daughter. And then after, Athel, uh, after Jehoram, another king, and then Athaliah becomes for six years sort of this, this, this nightmare of a, uh, of a queen for South Judah. And when her opportunity comes for her to become queen, she kills off all of the grandchildren. What a grandmother she is. Kills all of the grandchildren. Would have wiped out the Davidic line if a woman by the name of Jehosheba had not hidden Joash for six years. And finally, when he gets to that point where he can actually be king, the high priest Jehoiada presents him as king, and Athaliah is dragged out and she is executed. Amaziah is next. And after Amaziah, he is followed by Uzziah, who's also known as Azariah. And Uzziah begins well, but he did not end on a high note. South Judah experiences an unprecedented economic growth during the period of Uzziah. He builds cities. He develops water conservation programs throughout Judah. He deals very successfully with those pesky Philistines from time to time. He even begins to, 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 to do some wonderful things spiritually for the country. But he begins to read his own press releases. And he becomes prideful. And he becomes prideful to the extent that he believes that he can usurp the place of those that have been ordained to do it. And he attempts to offer incense in the temple. And you know what happens. Leprosy breaks out on his forehead. And he is a king who goes around for the rest of his life saying, unclean, unclean to anyone who would get near him. Well, after Uzziah, there's Jotham. After Jotham, there is Ahaz. And it's here that one of the, the most dreadful periods of, of, of the history of the divided kingdom takes place. It's the Syro-Ephraimitic War. That's, it takes place during this period of time. Assyria is that great nation. They are cruel in the way that they treat people. They, they are butchers. They, they bring the hammer down on any nation that they fight. But right now, they're kind of concerned with a nation to the north called Urartu. And this gives Razan, who is the leader of Syria there in Damascus, and Pekah, who is in Samaria of Israel, it gives them the opportunity to start his anti-Assyrian coalition. And they want to force Judah to be a part of it. And the prophet Isaiah shows up and he encourages Ahaz to remain faithful to God. Do not, do not put your trust in them, but trust God to take care of you. And that's where this great Emmanuel, God with us prophecy comes from. That's what this is all about that Corey read for us a couple of minutes ago. But Ahaz, instead of trusting God, appeals to Assyria. He says, ironically, I don't want to test God. And that's exactly what he does by going to Assyria. Who wipes out Damascus and assassinates or executes Razan, but at great price. Ahaz just about bankrupts Jerusalem financially in paying tribute to Assyria. And you would think that as he's watching, you know, Damascus has been wiped out, Raisin has been done away with, and then 722, 721 rolls around, and you've got Assyria coming down and just laying to, to ashes all of those ten northern tribes, that he would see that and that would sober him spiritually. But it doesn't. Ahaz is not only bankrupted the treasuries of the temple, but he bankrupts Judah spiritually. He worships Baal. Believe it or not, he burns his sons in sacrifice to Moloch. Second Chronicles chapter 28. He burns incense in the valley of Hinnom. He burns it in the high places. He burns it under every green tree. And he closes the doors of the temple. Man, it's a dark time. 
But renewal is just around the corner because Hezekiah, great Hezekiah, returns the people to God. Second Chronicles 29, verse 3, he reopens the door of the temple. Verse 16, he gets rid of all of the unclean things and drags them out into the Kidron Valley. If you remember the old Sanford, uh, Sanford and Son show with the junkyard, that's the Kidron Valley with all of the pagan unclean things, just filled up with all of these unclean things. Verse 18, he purifies the temple and the altar of burnt, offer, uh, the altar of burnt offerings. In verse 15, he consecrates the priest once again. And then, in, in, a, in an attempt to reunite what's left of those northern tribes, the remnant that is in north Israel with south Judah, he invites everyone to come back to the temple for a Passover. A little bit later, Hezekiah is going to revolt himself against Assyria and the king Sennacherib. You know, those Assyrian kings are not warm, fuzzy individuals. I mean, their name says it all. They're rough, guttural names. Tiglath-Pileser III. Asher-Banapal. It sounds like, I'll smash you into a ball. Sargon V. Sennacherib. If you mess with him, he'll snack on your rib. That's what it sounds like. These guys are horrible individuals. And he rebels against them. He builds bigger defense walls. The great Hezekiah walls are built around Jerusalem. He's famous for the Gihon Spring, Siloam Tunnel Underground that watered Jerusalem during the siege. And Sennacherib decides it's time to deal with Jerusalem. And so he heads down into south Judah, and there's Lachish. Lachish is just going to be the warm-up. It's to the, kind of to the southwest of Jerusalem. It's, uh, it's, it's between Jerusalem and, and the, uh, the, the Mediterranean Sea. And it's going to be the warm-up for, for the big game in Jerusalem. And so Sennacherib just completely raises to the ground Lachish. And one of the most famous uh, reliefs that you can find over in the British Museum, it is a relief of the siege of Lachish and its destruction by the Assyrians. And now he's headed to Jerusalem. And they surround Jerusalem. And they have people shouting all kinds of things over the wall to dishearten the people. Hezekiah becomes a little disheartened. He throws himself down on, on the floor in the temple and he prays to the Lord. And that night, 185 Assyrians during the night die. And then Sennacherib and the rest of his army head home to Nineveh. After him is Manasseh, terrible king. Ironically, 55 years on the throne. Complete opposite of his father, Hezekiah. Sacrifices his own sons. Everything, the Bible says, everything that God opposed, he brought into Judah. And towards the end of his life, he ends up in exile and prison for a period of time. He seems to have repented at the end of his life, but it doesn't have any effect on his son, Ammon. Ammon loves that old-time pagan religion. Fortunately for, for South Judah, he's only in office for two years, from 642 to 640 B.C. And during this time, Assyria is finally getting its comeuppance, and it's going downhill as Babylon is becoming the big power in the world. And right around the corner, Josiah comes on the scene. He's eight years old when he becomes king. He brings about a great spiritual reformation in Israel. The book of the law, as they're repairing the temple, is discovered. And, and, and most of the scholars think that what they found was actually the book of Deuteronomy. And they begin to read the Word of God again for the first time in decades. But because of the 55 years with Manasseh and the two years with Ammon, there's little evidence whatsoever that the people's hearts were softened enough for the Word of God to penetrate. And we read these words at the end of, of Josiah's life, 2 Kings chapter 23, Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did. 
with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength, in accordance with all of the law of Moses. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger which burned against Judah, because Judah against Judah because of all that Manasseh had done to arouse his anger. A good king not able to save his people. Well, after Josiah, you have Josiah's three sons. You have a grandson. They are the last of the kings of Judah. And Babylon comes to Jerusalem to finish what Assyria never did. There are three main uh, sieges to Jerusalem where people are carried off into exile. In 605 B.C., the Babylonians carried Daniel and his three friends off into captivity. And then in 598 and 597 B.C. in that area, 10,000 Jews are carried into Babylonian captivity. Probably the time that Ezekiel is carried off down uh, near Tel Aviv. And then in 586 B.C., after enough rebellion, enough is enough, the Babylonians come and they completely and utterly destroy everything in Jerusalem along with the temple. And from an outsider's view, it looks like everything has been completely lost for the nation of Israel. But there was a prophecy that kept ringing in their ears. Old prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7 about a son of David on whom the Spirit of the Lord would rest. Which brings us to the coming of the perfect king. Some centuries later, and the irony, I mean, the, the, the passage just drips with irony. Wise men from the east, which meant that they were probably from Babylon. They've come once again, they've come back to Jerusalem. This time not to defeat a king, not to lay siege to a city, but in search of a king. And they're told, and they discover that in the city of David, a city called Bethlehem, the house of bread, that a king has been born. And he is the greater son of David. David was a man after God's own heart. This king has the heart of God himself. And he would not enslave sons, but during his rule and his victories, he would end their enslavement by, as Isaiah would say, proclaiming freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoner. He would not sacrifice sons, but he would become the son who is sacrificed. He's not the king who was saved, although he couldn't save his people. He is the king who did not save himself in order to save his people. And in so doing, he became that dread victor that Von Rod talks about, overcoming all of his enemies. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be defeated is, say it, death. And he becomes the king, the once and forever king, and there will be no other. And at the end of time, we're told, that when He comes again as Lord and as King, every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. We're going to sing a song right now, praising God.
for the greatness of His faithfulness to His promises and the way that He has transformed our lives through this King who was born in Bethlehem. The One who drives the darkness away from us. The One on whom the Spirit of God Himself has ministered and done His, 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 His mission and completed it in victory. And during the singing of the song, we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. And if there are spiritual needs, maybe prayer, maybe counsel, encouragement, whatever it might be, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds. Or it may be that you've never given your life to this king. There have been so many other kings, smaller kings in your life, kings that you have followed, but kings that have enslaved you. Kings that have ruined your life. Kings that promised to save you, but in the end, messed you, your life up. Devastated your life. And now it's time to give your life, lock, stock, and barrel, to the once and forever King, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. And this morning, if you would like to do that, we would love to see that happen. We would love to see your sins washed away in baptism. We would love to hear your confession that Jesus is Lord. And we would love to witness the repentance of your life as you turn away from all of those, those smaller kings that do nothing but, but devastate you and turn to the one King who will end your enslavement and give you abundant life and joy and peace.